Hi, this is Dr. Ali Sharma with a trigger warning for everyone. You may hear us speaking about life experience in this podcast that have meaning for you, that may be difficult to hear, or that may affect your loved ones. As always, we encourage you to seek help from a licensed mental health professional or other healthcare provider with any questions you may have about what you're going through. Everything in this podcast is for informational purposes only, and it's not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please don't delay seeking help because of something you hear on Model Mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma. And I'm Bridget Malcolm. And this is Model Mentality, a podcast where we are opening up the dialogue on mental health, one conversation at a time. Hello and welcome to Model Mentality. Today it is Let's Get Real. I am one of your hosts, Bridget Malcolm, and I'm here with Dr. Ali Sharma. So today we are reflecting on the episode with Clara McGregor. I really enjoy Clara's episode for a number of reasons. I really like how candidly she discussed anxiety. And this is certainly something I'm keen to dive into a little bit with you, Ali. Um, you know, I liked how she was able to articulate that from a very, very young age, she, she struggled with anxiety and that anxiety can manifest in children quite differently to how it manifests in adults. Um, I think that's a very important distinction to make. And it's also something that I'm, again, looking forward to discussing with you, Ali. I, I mean, I certainly related to her story on a number of different issues, like substance abuse and, you know, struggling with food and just feeling anxious all the time and not in my own body. And I also really related to her dis- discussing how acting and how putting together a production company kind of pulled her out of it and having focus on something bigger than herself that was a passion, how important that was for her own mental health and for her own healing. Um, I certainly thought it was an incredibly powerful episode and I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I feel like we could have talked to her for hours. What about you, Ali? What did you take away from it? Yeah, sure. So in my clinical practice, I don't work with children, but I work with adults and Oftentimes, you know, people don't want to go back to their childhood, back to their mother, back to their father, but we are wired because of who, of who we are biologically, but also because of the influences when we're growing up, especially before 18 years of age. And what stood out for me as a psychiatrist is when she was talking about her father before he came, before he became sober when she was six and how his substance use disorder caused him to be absent, erratic you know, not there emotionally, not as present as one could be without the substance use disorder. And that had an impact on her. Now she, we didn't explore her family and do they have a biological or genetic predisposition to anxiety. So there's all of that, that one would look at as a physician evaluating a person. But, you know, one of the influences was that, right? That erratic way her father was or was not showing up did feel like a link to her separation anxiety, as she described. And we know separation anxiety is something that presents in, in younger children. Um, so, so there's that connection, right? Our environment, the way our influential people in our lives are, our parents usually are who raises you, they do have an impact on our development. And, and, there's, and it's multifactorial, of course. And then fast forward, I found it interesting that when she was in that abusive relationship, and when she finally saw a psychiatrist who said, actually, this is an anxiety disorder that you're now having in your 20s, and she was able to get treatment for it, meaning she finally was able to find a way to control the anxiety, she had the clarity to think about the relationship, reflect on it, and leave. But with the anxiety present, 
and specifically the separation piece, she wasn't able to get there. So that to me speaks to the power of treatment of anxiety disorders, but also then how you can change your life so positively if you get a handle on the anxiety. And then fast forward, you know, when she, when people are trying to manage anxiety on their own, let's say medications aside or therapist aside, it is so easy in a country where alcohol is available and not prohibited to reach for alcohol or to reach for pills if you're prescribed them or have access to them to people around you, because it's a quick way to fix it. It doesn't mean that's the right way to fix it, but a lot of people do that. Um, and then we heard in her story that she got into um, a position of Xanax abuse, Xanax dependence, and that had a very negative impact on her life. You know, so for me, they were all connected. And once she, you know, was able to address the Xanax addiction, which underlying that was anxiety driving it, which she acknowledged to us, um, when she got a handle on it again, her life has started to improve. And so what's the takeaway here? The clinical takeaway is, you know, there there is anxiety, which we'll talk about. There are anxiety disorders, which can impact your life negatively. And if that feels like that's happening to you, you can get help. Let's get started with the questions. Um, my first question for you has to do with COVID-19. So how have you seen anxiety in a clinical setting be affected by COVID-19? both during the pandemic and then now when we're in this return to life phase? Because I know for me, it felt like overnight we went from wearing masks and staying away from people to suddenly it's all, all masks are off and you can be in close quarters and still we're getting tens of thousands of new cases every day. And, you know, I just, it, it happened very quickly. So I'm certainly very curious to hear your takeaways on that and what you've observed, I guess, in your life. Sure. Okay. So let's talk about COVID-19 and anxiety. We saw as clinicians, but also looking at literature and studies, a surge in anxiety from the beginning. Of course, there was the initial anxiety of like, wow, what is, what's happening? People are dying. We don't know what this is yet. There was anxiety of uncertainty and then also anxiety of shutting down, right? The quarantine. Um, but I think as that became more and more prolonged, I saw high rates of anxiety and stress, especially in people who'd never experienced it before. A lot of new onset mental health issues. And the way to think about it is if you take one's life and all the stressors, COVID-19 is just another dimension of stress that is layered onto everything else and can add to fragility in one's, let's say, state of being. Um, so definitely anxiety was high. I also saw it reverse in the other way where people who had social anxiety or anxiety disorders who were in treatment and well-controlled and were receiving treatment throughout the time that COVID-19 came into our lives, they were actually feeling protected because first they have the tools and the resources to get help, but also they were finally feeling, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. Now everyone is in the same situation that I'm in. So it actually makes me feel comforted. I heard that a countless number of times, which was an, a, an interesting phenomenon. And I'm, this is more anecdotally in my practice. I don't know if there's a study um, in there. Now, stress, prolonged stress, prolonged anxiety, that takes a toll. I think people have just been exhausted because of all of the ways it has shaped our lives or impacted our lives. And now with re-entry, not everywhere, right? But in where we are at the moment, um, I mean... I would say that most people that I see clinically are feeling much better because there is light at the end of the tunnel. It feels hopeful, at least here in New York, you know, where rates of vaccinations are high, rates of COVID are lower, 
you're, there's more freedom to be open. You can wear a mask if you're vaccinated in stores or inside. Children are not vaccinated. That's the only other variable here. But people are feeling a little bit better because we know that social support helps mental health. And in this time of opening up, we can actually go back to the normal ways of socializing or reconnecting with friends in a way where there isn't that fear and anxiety of like, what if I get COVID or what does this mean if we, you know, couple up and are exposed to one another in person? So, but I have heard, you know, some people talk about reentry. Yes. And maybe that's causing some mild anxiety with like reconnecting in the workplace, re-socializing, not wearing your, wearing your mask around, but I don't see the levels of distress that we did last year and at the beginning of the pandemic and as it went on and on. I'm glad to hear that. I, I feel like I'm the opposite of that. I was felt my best during lockdown, during the pandemic. And now I'm kind of like, how do I socialize again? I've forgotten how to be human, but it's, it's getting better. I think you just, the more I, more I do it, the easier it gets. But it definitely was a steep learning curve. Like, oh, I can't stare at people for that long because they get uncomfortable. Good to know. Yeah. Or like some people, you know, will say unmasking and walking on the street feels naked or vulnerable or strange. And even thinking about sitting down at a dinner party or a dinner table, you know, it just feels like a new experience. So again, I think just like we had to get into a new routine back then of normal socializing and then going to a quarantine way of socializing, we're now going back into a new routine again of perhaps proceeding with caution, but learning how to socialize again and knowing that the, the risk isn't entirely gone, right? There is still some risk and uncertainty. So yes, I think, I think it is an adjustment for a lot of people. And that's the thing, like I'm kind of talking about the trend that I've seen, but everyone has their individual response to their surroundings and what's going on. So Bridget, there might be people at you that are having the same experience as you. And that's also okay to acknowledge like where you are in all of this and to be aware and mindful of that. I love that. Yes. I got to say though, nothing felt better than hugging a colleague who I only knew on my computer, like last week, like hugged her in person. And I was just like, Oh, this is good. I like this. <laughs> no, I agree. And I even this week, it was a birthday week. And so I organized outside because I still have young children. So I'm a little bit nervous to do it inside, but um, outside a dinner party of 20 people. And that was so liberating and freeing to do that. Right. And just to see old friends again and yeah, just to indulge in that. So I agree. I guess I want to pull it back to a much bigger question. What is anxiety? And why do some people seem to experience it physically and others experience it mentally? Why do some people get it and some people don't get it? Like, what is it? I know it has something to do with the sympathetic nervous system. <laughs> okay. So, well, let's talk about anxiety first. Usually anxiety is about your response when you anticipate something happening in the future. So, which is a threat or which is hard to think about. So think about anxiety leading up to a speech or performance anxiety. Usually there's like fear and worry there that you're not gonna do well or that one might you know, have an external appearance that is not what they want. And they're thinking about it in anticipation. Um, anxiety can also be irrational or pathological worry worry about a lot of different things. Um, however, that being put aside for a second, anxiety often can present physically as well. So the first thing I want to say though is anxiety 
is a healthy human response. But when it is excessive, disproportionate to what's happened um, and causing distress, that that's when it might be a disorder. Um, you know, we have worked in the primary care system and in primary care, we see physical anxiety presenting a lot of times to the doctor, you know, severe stomach pain, muscle tension, fatigue, insomnia. These can all be signs of uh, an anxiety disorder or anxiety and stress. Um, and, you know, you mentioned a couple of things. So there's, there's anxiety, there's anxiety disorder when it causes, it causes distress and it's pathological. And then there's also another type of symptom um, related to a disorder called panic disorder, which are panic attacks. Panic attacks are common and often accompanied by physical symptoms. So it's activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight response, um, which is adrenaline and think about your body being active. And in a panic attack, it can often feel so physical, right? So you might have palpitations or increased heart rate. You might have nausea, maybe vomiting in some cases, sweaty palms, sensation of feeling cold, hot, perhaps a fear of dying or an irrational fear. A panic attack is a discrete circumscribed surge in anxiety, often can last 15 to 20 minutes, sometimes longer, sometimes a little shorter, and they often can come without warning or trigger. Panic disorder is when they're recurrent and they're, they're causing so much distress that it might cause someone to change the way they interact with the world, meaning withdrawing, or they're so worried that they're going to have a panic attack that they stay at home, you know, or avoid things that they would otherwise. And it can be incredibly distressing, right? So you have anxiety, which can be healthy and let's say, inner start to interfere with functioning. Then you have anxiety disorders like generalizing anxiety disorder or panic disorder, and then you have the panic attack, or if you have too many, that's panic disorder. So why do some people get anxious and others don't? Or have panic attacks and others don't? Well, I think that goes back to the way we look at things, which is like biological influences. So does anxiety cluster in your family? Is there a genetic predisposition to it? Um, are you using medications that may bring out anxiety in some way? Do you have any health conditions that may predispose you to anxiety like or, or exhaustion, like anemia or thyroid issues, or, or there are others? Um, so that's the biological piece. So you have to really look at one's makeup and what's going on there. Then there's the psychological piece, which is a confluence of influences in one's life, how, how you're wired psychologically. You know, again, that's complicated as well. So who you are and how you respond based on earlier influences, based on genetics, and then your social environment. What influences you? What are your triggers? What are things that you're more sensitive to? Or what are the stressful factors that may be bringing out the anxiety? For example, the COVID-19 pandemic, and let's say you had a thriving career and all of a sudden that came to a halt and you couldn't pay for your children you know, and what they needed, or you couldn't pay your mortgage payments. And it just causes this cycle of distress because of this real outside stressor, right? That can bring out anxiety as well. So it's usually a, a complicated web of things that influence why someone has anxiety and why someone does not. What are some treatments for anxiety? So again, it depends on what the nature of the anxiety is. Is it anxiety that's popping up here and there, not so frequently, or is it an anxiety disorder that's causing uh, impairment in functioning or significant distress? And the treatments would be different for those. So I would say if it's milder anxiety, but 
keeps coming up as a pattern, but you maybe don't even understand what um, are the sensitivities, I would say therapy is a good place to start. Go to a licensed mental health professional to figure that out. Um, there's other things that you can do outside of therapy that we know are proven to be helpful for anxiety, such as um, breathing and relaxation techniques, meditation and yoga, um, minimizing caffeine and alcohol and cigarettes and tobacco. Um, exercise is great. And making sure that you're getting regular sleep, minimum seven hours a night. Some people I know sleep less, but on average, seven hours a night of uninterrupted deep sleep. Um, so those are some things that you can do uh, at home. Um, and then in terms of treatment, so you have therapy, you have the self-care. Um, and if the anxiety is impairing your functioning, impacting your ability to be yourself, so impacting your ability to sleep, to concentrate, your energy, all of that, then I would say it's probably time to have an evaluation with a psychiatrist or a medical doctor to see if there's anything else contributing medically, from a substance point of view, otherwise. And then treatments are really tailored to that. Could be medication, could be different therapies, like cognitive behavioral therapy is a great one. Um, but it really depends on what you're experiencing and, and finding the right treatment for that. My final question is, does anxiety ever fully go away? And is that something you would even want? I remember in one of my first therapy sessions with um, a CBT therapist. And great. He was fantastic. I He asked me, like, what percentage my anxiety lives at um, in a day-to-day -day basis? And then, like, what percentage would I want? And I was like, at that point, I was struggling. And I was like, I don't know. 80 or 90%. And I was like, I want it at zero. And he's like, well, you don't want it at zero because if you were at zero, you just wouldn't get anything done. There'd be no reason to actually like have a get up and go. And that kind of blew my mind a little bit. I, I didn't realize like, of course, it's actually serving a purpose. Um, It's forcing us to kind of do things. <laughs> so yeah, I guess I'd like to hear your feedback on that and your take on that. So I agree. I think that anxiety can be helpful. It's a normal adaptive response when it comes in healthy doses and when it's not so overwhelming or so overpowering. But even so, traumatic events can increase, you know, it causes hyperarousal or activation of the sympathetic nervous system. And you just don't want that to hang around forever. Now, if the stressor is around forever, it's chronic stress. That's another topic. But for example, I mean, I, you know, one of my kids, as you know, had a huge health issue. And when time came for that intervention, it was very stressful. And I had a lot of anxiety, right? Anxiety that was inter interfering with my ability to sleep. I couldn't sleep for a week, but then it went away, you know, and there are things you can do in that week. You know, you can use a little melatonin. There's things that one can do to help with sleep, but it was there, but for a reason, because there was like something life-threatening around. So it kind of makes sense that the anxiety was there. Now, if the stressor had gone away, meaning there was no external trigger and my anxiety was still sky high for weeks and weeks or even months, that's when it's time to get help, right? That's when it's been, that's when the anxiety is dysregulated and too intense and really needs attention, just like any other health issue. So I would say, yes, in answer to your question, we want the unhealthy level of anxiety, that anxiety that causes too much distress or that interferes with functioning to fully go away, but not day-to-day -day anxiety where you notice, I'm nervous about something. Okay, I'm fine. You know, I can breathe. I got this. That's that's a healthy type of anxiety. I love it. Thank you so much, Ali. Um, listen to our episode with Clara McGregor today. I think you will really enjoy it. <laughs> So yeah, listen to our episode and tell us if it resonates with you or if you've had the experience of 
anxiety that then gets in the way of you being able to think, but then when you treat the anxiety, how has it changed your life? That's what we'd love to hear. Yeah, shoot us a comment on Instagram or DM us and we'll get back to you. And if you have a question you want to ask myself or Dr. Ali, please do. We will answer your questions. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on Model Mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.